So this evening I'd like to talk about practicing in nature or how nature can be a support for our practice or awakening in nature or awakening to our true nature in nature (laughs) as part of our nature because we are nature it's in us we're this rare species that can observe nature in a very unique way see ourselves as part of the web as opposed to just feeling part of the web so I just came back from doing a uh, 10 day rafting meditation retreat down the green and Colorado River in southern Utah which for those of you who know that area, it's completely spectacular wilderness. Didn't see anybody. So one one group in 10 days uh, immersed in this very old river. Apparently the rivers were formed before the rock formations were formed. And some of the rock formations are 1.7 billion years old. The main rock formations that we went through were about mm, 250 to 450. 450 billion, million years old and um, it was pretty old it was pretty quiet um, very profound it was a silent Vipassana retreat I think it was the first of its kind I don't think the Buddha led rafting meditation retreats <laughs> so it's a little avant-garde but here we are in the 21st century and it was incredibly sublime to be on the river while meditating for that length of time in community. And um, I've been leading these retreats the last few years, usually backpacking or just going out to some place in nature in the wilderness and uh, doing uh, a meditation retreat, mindfulness retreat uh, in the context of nature. And it's been a very profound, interesting journey. And I want to share some of the things that I'm learning and, and discovering and exploring and playing with really Uh, it's really an experiment so and I started doing this because for me uh, nature in a way has been my primary practice even though I practiced in various Buddhist traditions for 20 years um, my root guru as they say is probably nature it's the place I feel most uh, at ease at peace held It's the easiest place for me to access love, emptiness, sense of freedom, sense of completeness. I remember one of my earliest memories is lying in a a wheat field. I used to grow up around uh, some farmer's fields and uh, lying in the middle, we used to crawl into the, make little tunnels into the middle of the fields when they were fully ripened, of course, much to the farmer's chagrin. And we would lie there and just watch this, the wheat and the barley swaying, you know, in, in the blue sky. And, and I remember a specific memory of feeling um, completely at home and completely at peace. And I always reflected on that moment, especially as I was a teenager and in, in my 20s, and I used to think I would never find that peace again. And I have found that peace again, primarily through um, my Dharma practice but it's also found a a particular kind of fruition in in my practice and in nature. And though I might make a lot of references to wilderness trips that I've been doing recently, uh, I'm also writing about this theme and I originally started writing a book about sacred wilderness, about practice in the wilderness. And then I realized as I was writing, I was writing a lot about nature as all around us, you know, even though we're living in a city, nature is all around us, sky, air, elements, earth, trees, the grasses that break through the concrete, you know, it's just, it's very accessible. So um, this talk isn't about needing to go into the wilderness to experience this because we can just walk outside and taste it. And even though what the form that I'm doing is somewhat um, new, 
you know, I really feel like I'm part of the tradition in the sense that, um, you know, when the Buddha practiced, you know, the Buddha was born in a forest. He lived in palaces when he was a young man. And then he left home and practiced in the forest, did his ascetic practice in the forest. He attained awakening under a Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya. He practiced and taught for 45 years primarily in the, the, uh, in the forests and um, farmland of northern India and then died in a grove of trees. So his whole life was immersed in, in, in the nature of north, northeast India, central India. And his, you know, if you read the text, they're full of references to the natural world. He clearly had a very visceral, direct, immediate, intimate connection with the natural world, with the cycles, with the farming cycles. And one of my favorite stories of the life of the Buddha is when he was watching his father do a ceremonious planting of the crop. Classic, classic memories of his life, where he um, he was in the middle of his asceticism and was very weak because he wasn't eating very much, a grain of rice a day, and uh, didn't have enough energy to practice, and realized that the fruitlessness of that path, and mem- remembered this memory of him sitting under the, an apple tree, a rose apple tree, watching his father plant crops and being incredibly at peace, feeling contented, calm, joyful. Um, and he realized that that balance, that equipoise that he discovered sitting under the apple tree was really uh, a more useful doorway to practice the freedom. And so um, I like that memory because it's so connected to the natural world, sitting under rose apple tree, watching his father planting crops. After many of his teachings, he would say to his monks and nuns, there are trees and there are the roots of trees. Go meditate. Seek solace in the forest. Practice lest you regret it later. There are trees and the roots of trees. And so in those days, people practiced at the roots of trees. Or they would gather a a lump of kusha grass and sit sit on the grass in the forest. Another one of my favorite stories is when one of the kings that the Buddha would um, teach came looking for him and his monks in the middle of the night. And it was one of the full moon nights. And um, there was complete silence in the forest and the king wasn't sure where the Buddha was. And he came across this field of monks and nuns meditating under the full moon uh, in the middle of the forest, in a forest clearing. And I love that image of monks and nuns just sitting out under the full moon in the woods practicing. So every Buddhist tradition in some way is is always flavored by the culture and the environment in which it's in. And um, so in the Theravadan tradition, (laughs) particularly in Thailand, there's a strong uh, tradition uh, that's really one of the lineages of spirit rock of the Thai forest tradition, where people have chosen specifically to practice in the forest, in the jungles of Thailand, in the old growth forest, of which there's not that many left anymore. One of the um, senior teachers of the last century in Thailand was Achan Buddhadasa, whom many of you will, have, will know. And his monastery was called Swan Mok, what's Swan Mok, which meant the Garden of Liberation. It's a beautiful forest in southern Thailand and lots of meditation kudis in the woods. And um, he, was a, he was a profound, um, he saw nature as a profound teacher. And this is a story I want to share from Rodney Smith, who's a Vipassana teacher up in Seattle, about when he went to visit Achan Buddhadasa in the 70s. He said, when I arrived at the Achan Buddhadasa's monastery, I asked if I could stay at the monastery for a while and learn from him. He told me he had nothing to teach and I was better off going somewhere else. I left somewhat dejected and approached another Thai monk who spoke English. 
When I told him what had occurred, he suggested I go back and ask the Achan if I could stay because I wanted to learn from nature. I took his, I took his advice, approached the Achan, and once more requested to stay, but this time because I wanted to learn about my own nature by being in nature. Achan Buddhadasa's eyes lighted up and he said, Yes, you may stay. The forest is the teacher here. I ended up staying for three years and left only when I fully realized what my true nature was. And then there's a Tibetan tradition. Tibet's on a plateau of 12,000 feet. Amazing uh, skies, amazing crystal clarity of air. And so many of the yogis and yoginis practiced in the caves, practice in high Himalayan caves, in the snow line, above the snow line. And you can, see, and you can feel it in the, in the poetry and the writings and the practices, Dzogchen practices, Mahamudra practices, they reflect, I think, a certain quality of the environment that they came in. There's practices of um, sky-like mind. You know, when you're practicing in this beautiful blue sky in Tibet, you can see why they, they came up with a practice called sky-like mind, mingling the mind with the sky practice as another practice. And then there's the Chinese, the Chan tradition in China and the, the uh, Japanese Zen tradition. Again, full of stories of hermits, poets, monks and nuns living in hermitages up in the mountains, in solitude, uh, very intertwined with their environment, very seemingly at one with uh, the nature that was around them and, and, and sensing the teaching. This is, a, this is from Han Shan from his collection of Cold Mountain Poems. I climbed the road to Cold Mountain, the road to Cold Mountain that never ends. The valleys are long and strewn with stones. The streams broad and banked with thick grass. Moss is slippery though no <coughs> rain has fallen. Pines sigh but it isn't the wind. Who can break from the snares of the world and sit with me among the white clouds? As for me, I delight in the everyday way among mist-wrapped vines and rocky caves. Here in the wilderness I am completely free, with my friends, the white clouds, idling forever. There are roads, but they do not reach the world. Since I am mindless, who can arouse my thoughts? On a bed of stone I sit alone in the night, while the round moon climbs up the cold mountain. So clearly very steeped in the texture of that land and how that's informed his understanding understanding and awakening. Though that particular poem makes it sound like he had a great time up in the misty clouds and the, the mountains and he also writes a lot about how difficult it is. He's lonely, he's cold, the food sucks. Um, he wonders if anybody thinks about him or remembers him or cares about him anymore. But yet there's a profound... Uh, freedom that is also in, in his in his writing. And then there's a Western tradition of people who've uh, sought solace in nature, in the wilderness, poets, mystics, Christian mystics, desert fathers, Jesus himself, Henry David Thoreau, and others of the, that ilk. This is from Thoreau when he was, this is an addendum to his writings on Walden Pond. So he's reflecting about his time after he wrote that book. He said, there was a time when I could not afford to sacrifice the bloom of the present moment to any work, whether of the head or hand. I love a broad margin to my life. Sometimes in a summer morning, having taken my accustomed bath, I sat in my sunny doorway from sunrise till noon, wrapped in reverie, amidst the pines and the hickories, in undisturbed solitude and stillness, while the birds sang around or flitted noiseless through the house. I was reminded of the lapse of time by the noise of some distant traveler's wagon. I grew in those seasons like corn in the night, and they were far better than any work of the hands would have been. 
I realize what the Orientals mean by contemplation in the forsaking of works. So, in a way, Thoreau was accessing the understanding of meditation through nature. It wasn't a conscious practice he was undertaking. He'd only read very little of uh, Asian teachings at the time. And he writes about going to Walden. He said, I came, I, went, I came to the woods to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, to see if I could learn what it had to teach, and not when I came to die, discover that I had not truly lived. So I like that particular quote because it, often when we go out into nature, when we get away from our life, from our entanglements, from whatever it is that we're caught up in, we go into the woods, into the field, into the, by the ocean, we get a sense of perspective. We get a sense of bigger picture. We look up at the night sky and we realize there's more than just our microcosm of our world. So I'd like to talk a little about how um, nature supports our practice, more specifically how it supports our mindfulness practice. So one of the things you might notice when you go out into nature and you meditate or you bring some meditative awareness to your experience, you'll notice that you're more alert that you know we're animals we go out into nature and and our instinctual conditioning arises our skin is more sensitive our sense of smell is a little heightened we're more aware of sound because we're instinctually uh, conditioned to be aware of predators and prey we might be more keen with our sight It's just a general heightened awareness that can happen when we go outside into nature. Nature encourages us to pay attention. Again, partly because um, we are animals and we have those, um, that instinctual uh, conditioning. Even though there's not that many predators left anymore, certainly in this continent, there's still mountain lions around, there's still snakes, there's still scorpions, there's still things that we like to not trip over. When I was out kayaking in Alaska, I, mean, I did a, 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 a kayaking meditation retreat in Alaska recently in a very pristine uh, ecosystem in uh, a place called Tevinkoff Bay, very unspoiled and um, beautiful. And we were out kayaking, and there was a lot of humpback whales around. And beautiful and wonderful as the whales were, you had to pay very good attention to, um, you know, the whales are probably about the length of this room, you know, probably, I don't know how many, how wide, 20, 20 foot wide, 50 tons. So you don't want to get in their way. You don't want to be in the way when they come up surge feeding. Or if you've been ever been hiking in country where there's where there's more predominant presence of predators, grizzly, brown bear. <coughs> I remember hiking up in on the Canadian border in grizzly country and become much more mindful. <laughs> you become very aware of your environment. You become aware of being part of the food chain. And we're not necessarily on top of the food chain, <laughs> where we like to be in safe ways. You know, we're a little below. Nature also invites us to pay attention because it's completely amazing to be awake in nature. It's completely amazing to be awake. Period. But in nature, it's you know we live in this world that's you know it's amazing, it's beautiful, it's mysterious, it's complex, it's rich, it's diverse. A friend of mine was telling me he was up um, uh, doing a canoe trip down the Eel River and they came, they were, they, they were on a beach and they saw this lava, um, this prehistoric looking lava thing 
crawl up a rock and then it somehow grabbed hold of its back and tore its back open and this thing emerged and, and, and started to stretch out its wings and then suddenly the wings just came full 90 degrees and it was a dragonfly metamorphosing itself like, like a butterfly does. You know, it's an amazing, you know, and, and I was on a retreat in DC recently and there were some butterflies, there were some cocoons, some chrysalises and, and the uh, monarch butterflies were emerging out of, the, out of this soup. You know, the, 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 the caterpillars spin this chrysalis and they turn themselves into soup and then they emerge as butterflies. It's completely amazing. <laughs> you know, every single cell apart from a few uh, I forget what they call the cells that don't dissolve, dissolve into this stew. And out of this comes this monarch butterfly. I mean, it doesn't get more amazing than that as far as I'm concerned. So invites, nature invites qualities that are really intrinsic to meditation practice. Interest, curiosity, investigation. It's quality of beginner's mind, of, of seeing things afresh. You know, I, I lived in my last house. There was an oak tree that grew up through the decks of the house, three-story. Uh, and every day I would look at that tree and it was different. It was never the same tree. And it was part of my practice to see whenever I went onto the deck to look at the tree, whether I thought it was the same tree. It was never the same tree. It was always different. My perception was different. The light was different. The air was different. So it invites, you know, we can look at things with a jaded eye or we can look at them with freshness. And then there's many beings in nature that model qualities of mindfulness. For those of you who've been out to Spirit Rock or walking in the hills around here, not around in the city necessarily, but um, watching the... uh, the deer that inhabit the woods. They're amazing um, examples of attentiveness. They're both very relaxed and they're feeding, grazing, looking after their young. And then as soon as there's a threat, they become incredibly alert, tense, ready to, to, to run or fight, usually run. And then when the threat disappears, they relax. They shake, they shake off the stress through, really, through shaking. And then they're back to complete poise. It's, it's a one, I think it's a wonderful metaphor for that sense of alertness and relaxation. Alertness, relaxation. So another support for our practice that nature can provide is quality of peace. Not necessarily for everybody at, at every time, but for the most part, I think the effect of the natural world is it. And actually, they, they're coming out with studies recently that they're, they're um, able to detect some kind of um, emanation that comes from trees that actually induces a sense of peacefulness in humans. There's some kind of I don't know whether, whether it's electromagnetic or some kind of field that that is emitting something. So there's levels, of course, which we know nothing about, we may never know nothing about, but we just have to pay attention to our experience. If we pay attention to our experience, you know, most of us are drawn to going to something in the natural world because it has a positive effect on our psyche. Calming, peaceful, soothing, helps us come to balance, helps us gain perspective. This is from Wendell Berry, farmer and activist and poet. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the 
Drake rests in his beauty on the water and where the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and I am free. I particularly like that line, I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief or catastrophe or bank balances or whatever we tax our lives with, with our forethought. Trees, as far as we know, don't seem to think very much. Maybe they do, but there's a sense of coming into, uh, into nature where the sense of human distress is absent and it has a really profound effect. And then there's a quality of silence, which is also a wonderful support for practice. And the silence that we can touch in nature is seems to allow us to access a deeper quality of silence. The truth is actually in nature, it's never silent. There's always some sound, just as there's always sound in a city. Birds, water, wind, animals, leaves. There's usually some sound. But in my experience, it's easier to access the silence that's even inherent, it's even within those sounds. That the sound of the sounds that arise in nature can help turn us towards silence. I did a retreat, I lead a retreat in the southwest. We do a backpack trip through uh, some Red Rock Canyons in Arizona. And one of the parts of that retreat is we send people off for 24 hours to do a solo. And the retreats are all in silence. And they go off for 24 hours to their own little spot just to have some solitude. And uh, so they come back after 24 hours and we have a circle. And it's always interesting for those of us who stayed at base camp when these people come back, the sense of the quality of silence is so amazingly deep. It's really palpable. There's something about being in nature alone. We access a certain depth of silence that we don't ordinarily, ordinarily have access to. So another thing that I notice in myself and with others is out in nature, especially if it's a longer period of time, um, it supports a quieter mind. I know when I'm out, whatever I'm doing, backpacking or rafting or whatever, it's harder to continue my sort of tumble dryer of thoughts because most of them seem so completely pointless when I'm out in the wilderness. You know, I'm rafting down the river, millions of years old canyons. It's still, there's nothing to do except meditate on the raft. You know, and then the thoughts about my life and my career and my money situation, my relationship, it just seems like so pointless. <laughs> you know, the, the, the natural world just echoing back like, just let it go. Like, if I'm walking down a trail and I notice I'm thinking about something, it just, the irrelevance of our thinking seems all the more apparent out in nature. not to say that we suddenly stop thinking. I know in the last retreat, a lot of what people had to work with was the thinking mind, the busy mind, the planning mind. But it was, it was, I still think it was useful to have that backdrop for people of seeing how um, caught up we are in it and how often completely unhelpful and useless it is to be lost in that spinning of the mind. 
And then there's a way that nature takes us towards, can take us towards a certain sense of stillness, certain sense of presence, certain sense of um, quality of mindfulness. This is from Eckhart Tolle. Whenever you bring your attention to anything natural, anything that's come into existence without human intervention, you step out of the prison of conceptualized thinking and to some extent participate in the state of connectedness with being in which everything natural still exists. To bring your attention to a stone, a tree, an animal does not mean to think about it, but simply to perceive it, to hold it in your awareness. Something of its essence then transmits itself to you. You can sense how still it is, and in doing so the same stillness arises within you. You sense how deeply it rests in being, completely at one with what is and where it is. In realizing this, you too come to a place of deep rest within yourself. Another thing that I observe when I'm out in nature in the wilderness is um, life gets very simple. You need to eat, you need to sleep, you need to stay warm, you need to stay relatively protected from the elements and drink. And that's about it. It's like it's pretty straightforward. And I always find it helpful to come back to that kind of elemental part of our existence. You know, we can sort of fill our lives with a lot of complexity and drama and and yet we actually need so little to be satisfied, to be contented, to be at ease. This is from Ryokan. My heart my hut lies in the middle of a dense forest. Every year the green ivy grows longer. No news of the affairs of man, only the occasional song of a woodcutter. The sun shines and I mend my robe. The moon comes out and I read Buddhist poems. I have nothing to report, my friends. If you want to find the meaning, stop chasing after so many things. So being in nature is also a great place to work with fear. How many people have fear of something in the natural world, being out in the wilderness? Some... Yeah, fear, aversion, fear of discomfort, fear of dark, fear of getting lost, fear of predators, fear of being bitten, fear of all kinds of stuff. I was, I, the last trip I went, the rafting trip in, in Utah, uh, we went down some pretty substantial rapids class two, class three, which isn't, class five is, is, is generally the biggest you can go down. This was, it was a class two or three. And they were fun. They were kind of bumpy and you get chicken around and get splashed. And in the last part of the rapids, I decided to go down in a rubber, what's called a rubber ducky, which is really just a very pathetic inflatable canoe that's, you know, you just blow and you fall over. And um, it's just fun to go and it kind of accentuates the thrill and so I went down the last piece, part of the rapids and I was determined not to fall in because it's cold and wet and dark and you know, and you know, you know what's under there and rocks and stuff. And so I was like, I really don't want to fall in, really don't want to fall in. And I was a teacher, you know, I didn't want to fall in, you know, I was like, you know, I want to look good. And of course I fell in. <laughs> I was like, big wave. I mean, I went through lots of waves. The very last big wave just was too much. I went over. And I was so happy I went in. It was like the best thing that could have happened. It was like, I just got over that fear of falling in. It's like, it wasn't a big deal. It was wet and it was fun. I got wet and I laughed and I held onto my paddle and my kayak and I jumped back in and it's like, okay, that was good. <laughs> I find it interesting to work with fear. You know, I, I, um, I have a certain fear of 
darkness. And it's great to be out in the wilderness to, to practice with fear of the dark because it gets really dark. And you're away from cities and lights and just to sit out in the middle of a forest in the dark, you know, without any protection and just feel it. You know, the Buddha would give this instruction all the time to his monks. You go out into the forest where there's spirits and robbers and tigers and go meditate and sit with your fear. You know? I mean you can do that, you know, down the tenderloin too if you like. It's the same you know, it's the same practice. Um, I just prefer to be in the woods, so I do it in the woods, you know. Achan Mun, one of the other famous Thai forest masters, teacher of Achan Cha, who's one of Jack Hornfield's teachers, he used to get his monks to sit in the pathways that were worn, you know, that were created by tiger tracks, you know. Sit in the middle of the tiger, you know, where the tigers hang out. They probably had to work with a lot of fear. And there, was a lot of, there was a lot of tigers in Thailand at that time. Apparently none of them ever got eaten, but they certainly work with their fear. So, the next piece of talk, I want to talk about how I see the, how nature reveals the Dharma, how nature reveals, reveals the teachings that we are practicing <coughs> with here. This is from Kabir, the poet Kabir. When our eyes and our ears are awake, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scripture. When our eyes and ears are awake, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scripture. So what are the things that we see in our environment that teach us? So the first and probably most obvious thing is the teachings of a nature, of change. You know, if, if nature is not, is, if it's anything, it's about change. There's nothing that stays around for very long. Wind, elements, even mountains, even, you know, the top of Mount Everest is marine sandstone, which means it was once at the bottom of an ocean. It's now at the top of the Thais Mountain. The Smoky Mountains used to be the highest mountain range in America, and now they're probably one of the lowest chains. The North Pole is now slush. It's not solid ice anymore. I saw a, uh, an ad in the, in the Chronicle who had a beautiful tropical island, aquamarine seas, and it was a very one of those teeny islands in the South Pacific. And it said, enjoy it now or never, because in a few years it's going to be underwater with global warming and the rising of the oceans. I live in Marin, and I, well, you get the same here. I happen to live on a ridge where the opposite ridge, the fog comes down most days, especially in the summer, and it kind of rolls down and burns off, rolls down and burns off, rolls down and burns off. And it's a really exquisite meditation of just, you know, it's, it's a meditation on change. Seeing this beautiful mass of white stuff, you know, rolling down, burning, rolling down, burning. You know, we're in the season of autumn. Leaves, flowers, plants turning towards darkness, towards winter, towards stillness. It's a beautiful reflective time just watching leaves fall from a tree. Very poignant. You know, we're coming into the season of, of, uh, of death and renewal. And, you know, nature also teaches us much about death and dying. We don't see it much in our culture, in the, in the human culture, but we see it more in nature, in animals, in plants, in trees, roadkill. I was, uh, when I was doing this Alaska trip this year, it was the height of the salmon run, uh, the pink salmon run. And so there's like tens of millions of salmon roll in from They've left Alaska, they roll around to China and Japan, come back across the Pacific on a particular stream. And then at the end of their life cycle, they come back to their original spawning grounds to mate and die. So there's, it's very 
it's very profound to we're sitting on the beaches and living on the beaches and kayaking and there's just this mass of salmon going back to the spawning grounds and it's this amazing spectacle of life and death it's this huge movement towards procreation and at the same time every single one of those salmon is going to die they mate and then they die and it's just it was it's hard to describe what that was like to be in the middle of such a huge cycle of birth and death we don't see that usually on that scale and all the ecosystem around is living off that cycle so that all the black bears come down you see them coming down eating the salmon from the streams and the reason the humpback whales are there is because they also come from Hawaii living off the salmon fry and candlefish that also happen to be uh, um, recently spawned and so this is beautiful intertwining interconnected uh, movement of life and death and you have to get it out of the way when the whales are doing their eating thing we were once going through a very narrow channel and there was a humpback feeding and when they feed that and they search feed that the whole water lifts up because it's 50 tons coming to the water and then you kind of like and you, if you see bubbles they, they do this thing called I forget what it's called bubble feeding where they they swim in a circle and create bubbles and it kind of traps the fish and then they go through and they eat the fish and they surge up and all the fish try and jump away and we were kayaking once and I turned around and this was going on behind me there was a kayak behind me and then there's this whale came up breached and looked like it was going to take out my friend's kayak it was quite interesting fortunately he didn't see it because he would have been a little disturbed <laughs> this huge 50 ton whale coming to take out his kayak I think the place that I see most death is probably on the roads. Probably don't see it so much in the city, but certainly living out in Marin and further north, a lot of roadkill. Squirrels, birds, deer, skunks. And um, I I sort of have a fascination with seeing with not turning away from death in that way. Uh, I once pulled off the side of a road and there was a deer recently being knocked over and we tried to move it off the road and and it kind of, as it was, we were moving it and we were holding it, 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 you know, the light just went out in its eyes and passed away. Very profound to see death in that way. being out in nature for me supports me in looking at the idea of time as a concept especially when I'm out in nature that's very old you know, like in these canyons hundreds of millions of years old the idea of time the concept of time seems so so much that so much a concept and it's, I, I find it much easier to tap into the quality of timelessness. There's a certain timelessness to when we get out of our human-centered world. There's conventional time. And then there's, when we let go of the concept of time, what is there? when we let go of the idea of past, present and future, what is there? Nature also teaches us about imperfection. We live in a culture that's really obsessed with perfection. 
perfecting our bodies, perfecting our minds, perfecting our houses and wardrobe and music collection, iPod collection and whatever else we're into. It's very easy to get wrapped up in self-improvement, in the, in the kind of cult that we live in of self-improvement. And it's easy to forget that we're actually fine just as we are. On a fundamental level, our practice is not about fixing who we are, it's not about changing who we are, it's really realizing who we are. When we realize who we are, the rest falls into place. Suzuki Roshi once said, you are completely perfect just as you are. You are completely perfect just as you are. Just see how that feels to let that in. He also had an addendum to that, which was, and you could all do with a little improvement. (laughs) But we all start with, if I improve myself, then I'll be perfect. And we get it turned around. We're perfect just as we are. And yeah, we can all do with, you know, a little improvement here and there. And the reason I bring up this idea of imperfection perfection is when I go out into nature, I think when we generally go out into nature, we less have an idea of perfection and imperfection. We don't look at an oak tree and go, well, if it only just kind of, you know, was a little taller and bushier at the top, you know, and a little less gnarly, you know, and, you know, we just go, it's a tree, you know, it's an oak tree, it's, it's just what it is, you know, this, this hill, this mountain, this rock, this river, we, we kind of drop more into this quality of isness or thusness, of accepting things as they are without this need to fix it or change it or make it better. You know, we can do that stuff. We can prune and you know play with our gardens and stuff. But it's more profound just to see that things are perfect as they are, and maybe that's the same for human beings. You know, it's much harder to, to to translate that, but we can translate that. That we're all our own unique, gnarled, crooked oak tree. You know, we all have a particular flavor and idiosyncrasy and quirks and conditioning and funny habits and accents and hats and things like that. And This is from Mary Oliver, who's a wonderful spokesman for nature as teacher. It's called the ponds. Every year the lilies are so perfect I can hardly believe their lapped light crowding the black midsummer ponds. Nobody could count all of them. The muskrats swimming among the pads and grasses can reach out their muscular arms and touch only so many. They are that rife and wild. But what in this world is perfect? I bend closer and see how this one is clearly lopsided and that one wears an orange blight and this one a glossy cheek half nibbled away. And that one is a slumped purse full of its own unstoppable decay. Still what I want in my life is to be willing to be dazzled to cast aside the weight of facts, to maybe even float a little above this difficult world. I want to believe I am looking into the white fire of a great mystery. I want to believe the imperfections are nothing, the light is everything, that it is more than the sum of each flawed blossom rising and fading. And I do. I think the most profound lesson for me being out in nature is that nature doesn't have the quality of selfing like we do. So, you know, we go around, humans go around thinking that we're somebody, that we're separate, that we're independent, that we're this self, and everybody else is a self. And then we make a self out of everything a tree, a lion, a ladybug, 
a mountain, we kind of self things. We kind of make them into things, separate, discrete, unconnected. When we go out into nature, sometimes, and this is certainly my experience, when we l- it, it, it supports us letting go of this that self-centered preoccupation, self-consciousness. When we soften, we relax, and we just kind of feel into being out in nature, in the, by the ocean, sunset, woods, whatever it is that we're drawn to. When the sense of self is quieter, when we're not, and the the, the way to access the sense of self-quietening is to let go of our thinking mind. It's our thinking mind that perpetuates our selfing process. So I'll notice, I go out, I take a hike a lot where I live and I'll be sitting in some quiet little shady grove somewhere and just kind of being present to the natural environment. And the sense of self naturally quietens mostly and then I often notice, you know, I'm lying there feeling very at peace and in harmony with things. And then I'll notice, I'll hear some footsteps or some voices or some people coming up the hill, up the trail. And that sense of self comes back like, you know, Velcro, you know, oh, who are they? You know, are they a threat? They're going to, you know, they're going to see me. And, and just naturally that sense of, you know, self-concern and arises. And then... I notice when that happens, the sense of connection, oneness, unity, love, intimacy with the, the world around me has reduced itself. And then the people might go and that relaxes. And so it's very interesting to watch the sense of self as it arises and fades in nature. And I think one of the reasons that many people are attracted to being in nature, being in the wilderness, is that it's, the, it's because nature isn't selfing. It's not creating a sense of self. It's selfless. And so it allows our sense of self to relax. When our sense of self relaxes, what do we feel? We feel more peaceful, more connected, more whole, less fearful, more intimate with life around us. So lastly, the last thing I want to say is um, probably the most profound thing for me in my kind of exploration in nature is the relationship of nature and love. Because for me, nature opens the heart. When we're touched by something, the night sky, the stars, the ocean, some animal, some bird, a song, the sound of the wind. There's a sense of, often a sense of uh, awe or wonder or curiosity or interest or care, tenderness. And these qualities are very related to the quality of love. I think nature elicits that quality of love. Just like when the first astronauts took the picture of Earth from space, there was a sense, and many of the astronauts wrote about it, there was a sense of incredible tenderness that arose, seeing how delicate this planet is and how rare and beautiful in this vast void of blackness, this green and blue, living, breathing thing. I was once teaching a class, a meditation class in San Quentin and there was a lockdown and I was outside and there was a, it was just after a lockdown, there was prison guards, prisoners in the yard and we were waiting for something as you do in prison a lot, you just wait for stuff to happen. And um, it was a kind of stormy night like it's been tonight a little bit and suddenly out of this we were all looking at the sky because there's nothing else. We were just hanging around, guards, prisoners, and some of the staff I was with. And, and suddenly the full moon came up above the prison, above St. Quentin. It's a pretty ghastly looking building. And it was like amazing to see this vast blue, cloudy, stormy sky, and the full moon just kind of burst out. And everyone was like, 
wow. And it was a really beautiful moment. It's like there was such an interesting sense of connection in that moment. So there's a way that nature connects us. Yeah. As a separate as, and as individual we like to think of ourselves, it also, it's what bonds us, it's what we share together. I lead these retreats at Spirit Rock. We, we, in nature retreats, we sit four or five days in the woods, up in, this, up in the hills, under a tree, there's a particular beautiful oak tree that, that shades, provides shade for about 30, 40 people. And every time I sit there and I do day-longs in these retreats, I always, the main thing that I'm left with is this incredible sense of love. Like that that land seems to be kind of, uh, what's the word, emitting a sense of love. The, the shade of the tree, the sense of being held. It reminds me of one of my favorite haikus from Isa, Japanese poet. He said, in the cherry blossom shade there is no such thing as a stranger. In the cherry blossom shade there is no such thing as a stranger. It also allows us to feel compassion. I remember being at Spirit Rock recently and there's a little teeny, teeny, teeny um, baby mouse just crawled out of whatever nest it crawled out from. Little pink, teeny hands, teeny eyes, looking for its mom. <coughs> Rolling on its back. <coughs> you know, just, and there's just like, you couldn't help but feel love for this thing. You know, it's like so vulnerable. And, and up in Alaska, we look at the, you look at the sea and it's full of these amazing rocks. And then you realize, when you look underneath, because it's quite clear, the whole ocean floor is moving, mostly. And it's mainly moving with hermit crabs. There's like millions and millions of hermit crabs. And if you've ever paid attention to hermit crabs, you know, there's an expression, dog eat dog, which really should be applied to hermit eat hermit crab. Because all they're doing is, bigger one is eating little ones, and little ones are running away from big ones. And it's just this mass of, it's like a huge fight going on. It's like a hell realm. You know. So, I'm running out of time. So, as the Buddha said, there are trees and there are the roots of trees. Go meditate, seek solace in the forest, lest you regret it later. So if anybody's found these words helpful, I would encourage you to um, explore practicing in nature, sitting in the park, sitting on the beach, sitting by the ocean, walking in the hills. We live in this amazing place where nature is very accessible and it really supports our Dharma practice. We can really use it as part of our Dharma practice. So, that's all I have to say for now. <laughs> um, I do want to invite, I, I invite people to, um, I left a leaflet out there of some of the things that I'm doing if anybody's interested in doing some nature-based practice, uh, I do a bunch of day-longs at Spirit Rock where we sit in the woods and walk in the woods. And we, I do a retreat there uh, in the summer. And I'm also doing a lot of different retreats next year, kayaking and meditation up in Alaska. And these retreats are all in silence. So they're very profound. There's a combination of silence, community, nature, dharma practice. It's a very powerful combination. So we have a kayaking retreat up in Alaska. We have a kayaking retreat with the gray whales in Baja, Mexico (laughs) in March. And a rafting retreat in Utah in October. And then some backpack retreats, one in in April in the canyons and one in August up in the Sierras. They're all quite wonderful. So, 
come see me afterwards if you have any questions about that. And there's information about that on the table. I also have a website called, um, right now it's called natureretreats.org. It's soon going to be wildernessretreats.org. So check that out. And I'm leading a uh, day long at Spirit Rock on the 19th of November. Call it's a Vipassana 101 day long. If anybody's interested in getting a just initial sense of Vipassana practice as we practice it on retreat, um, it's a good time to check it out if you're interested. I also have cards which have all my stuff on over there too. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.